Namaste. There are three ways of uh, looking at Veda. The word itself means knowledge, but of course it's uh, not the knowledge of the usual kind, not the knowledge which we get from the senses through the mental analysis. And that's why it's a secret knowledge. This knowledge comes when we transcend the senses and the mind through the path of yoga as is indicated in the Veda itself. So one way to look at Veda is the secret knowledge which is hidden in creation behind everything. It's the secret knowledge masked as ignorance as Shubhinda puts in Savitri. So this knowledge is implicit everywhere. At one place in Savitri, Shubhinda speaks of Satyavan as the Veda knower of the unwritten book. So one way to look at Veda is a set of books. But another way is that Veda, the secret knowledge is there within creation, in the heart of every atom. And through the yoga that is revealed there, this knowledge can get revealed to us. And what that means is nothing less than a transformation of not only our inlook, our outlook and a much greater empowerment and wisdom with regard to dealing with the world. Because this knowledge is not just a set of, uh, you know, as I said, um, books, hymns, but a, a wisdom. So Vedas are enshrining, the Veda, the book is enshrining little bit of this wisdom. And this wisdom is there in creation. And uh, uh, if we look at the working of an atom, if we look at the working of a cell, if we look at the shock of a star, if we look at the meteor shower, if we look at the way a rose blooms, if we look at the way the, you know, uh, the planets are spinning around in everything, every aspect of material creation, it's a detailed study, uh, more than a study, a revelation. Um, we will find this secret knowledge. And that's why those whose eyes are open, they can actually discover this knowledge just passing through in the babble of a child, in just observing commonplace events. So that is one way to understand the Veda, that the Veda is the secret knowledge, the wisdom which is in creation, Pragya Prasato Purano, the ancient of the days, the wisdom that has gone forth into creation. The second is way of looking at Veda is, um, as Shubhinda puts it in uh, the four eights in the synthesis of yoga, the supreme Shastra. So again, Shastra is outside and Shastra is within us. The supreme Shastra, the eternal Veda, the supreme Shastra of the integral yoga is the eternal Veda. Where is it? The eternal Veda secret in the heart of every living and thinking creature. So, it is there within our heart. So one is its implicit in creation. But how do we access that knowledge? One way is science going outward. Another way is to discover this source of knowledge within us, in the heart. And that's why in the Vedic lore it is said, that knowing which all else can be known. Yasmin vigyate vigyati sarvam. That by knowing which all can be known. So Veda is not just, obviously not just an intellectual knowledge that's understood. But it's not just a knowledge of a supracosmic transcendental state. It's a knowledge which reveals to us the workings of the cosmos, the creation, the human body, this uh, you know instrumentality within time and space, the manifestation of the divine through time and space and all the objects. So this, to access this knowledge, the root we have to take is within and from within it spreads out, branches out outwards into the whole universe. And how this bud opens, that too Shirobindo describes very beautifully in the synthesis. And the third, of course, which is the way we commonly understand the Vedas, is that there are a set of books and wonderful books, of course, and that's a different subject 
the three books, the Rig, the Ajur, the Sam, and then comes the Athar Ved. And of course, people include the Ayurveda also as a kind of Vedic lore. And then, yes, the Mahabharata is the fifth Veda. And I would say the Savitri, the Veda of the future. And many, many other scriptures, written and unwritten, which have shaped the uh, spiritual knowledge and which have kept the spiritual thirst of mankind alive. So all that can be a larger way of looking at Veda as a vast body of spiritual literature. The first Mention of which we find in what today has come down to us as the Rig Veda, Yajur Veda, the Sam Veda and the Athar Veda. Little later in time. The beauty is that the Vedic lore itself speaks about the forefathers who were before them. So, Vedas are a document of the most profound spiritual experience and realizations. And surely, as the mother says at one place, they were not just ordinary beings. They were involutionary beings who came to this um, soil of earth to seed it with seeds of light. So we find in Vedas the key thoughts that will govern mankind for ages to come. Because these seeds were seeded by involutionary beings. And what is meant by that is, uh, you know... Uh, the beings of the higher states of consciousness, higher domains, who took a human body and uh, at the impulsion of an inner command, they gave these truths to mankind. And why they are regarded as sacred or why they are regarded as the profound truth, uh, Shubhinda says in one of his aphorisms very beautifully, not because it is there in a sacred book or because somebody uttered it, but because the soul saw it. Meaning that by the ultimate evidence, we go back to the soul vision. And these rishis had the soul vision and uh, thereby the truths that they revealed may not be immediately accessible to the mind. But if we follow the trail, the Vedas begin to disclose themselves also within us. So the Vedic lore as we understand today uh, is the document. But the quest, the mystic quest goes on even before that. The mother speaks of a uh, civilization even before the Vedic and the Chaldean. And the Vedic rishis themselves speak about the forefathers. So it's a quest which is coming since time immemorial. And I think man is uh, characterized by this quest. Because a human being who doesn't have this aspiration or is seeking, um, you know, <laughs> I would rather put it in a different way that human beings are marked by this seeking. And the moment this seeking comes, the book of the Veda begins to open within us. So what essentially is this Vedic lore? The Vedic lore, first and foremost, is that there is one omnipresent, omniscient reality. So, dig it any which way. Go into the depths of the matter. You will reach a point where you will end up with behind the forms, phenomena. Um, you will encounter energy. Go through different levels of the energy. You will enter into consciousness. And go back to it. You will get the source. So, ultimately... There is one reality which stands to logic also that there cannot be two, three, multiple, um, you know, creative origins of this creation. So there is one origin and which brings home this point which we often miss that this entire universe is interconnected. Today we are learning it in strange ways but essentially why they are interconnected because there is one origin. And since there is one origin it is there within everything. So anything, if we go to its heart, you will discover the Vedas. You will discover that origin. But going out into an object and discovering it is far more difficult than going within and discovering it. Because here we are dealing with subjective layers. Whereas when we go outside, there are objective layers which are not easily accessible 
to the human vision. Of course, in the highest sense, the subjective and objective fuse together and we can say with equal truth that all is at its bottom subjective. <laughs> we can equally say that this world which we regard as objective is nothing but an objectivization of the supreme subject, the divine himself. So, uh, there are ways of looking at it. But the first truth is that there is one fundamental reality and if mankind could understand that we all have one origin, not just material origin, which of course is the inverse way of looking at it, but a common spiritual origin, I think much of the fights and struggles that we are facing will uh, automatically get solved. So Vedas, if you look at it that way, is the a solution to the problem that mankind is facing of various kinds of division. So you see every religion speaks of one God but it ends up with the God of my religion and that's where the problem comes, putting it very squirely. But what do the Vedas say? There is one God but he has many, many, many aspects. So these many aspects become the gods and the goddesses. So this is something very wonderful because very often people say, oh, why there are so many gods and goddesses um, in the Sanatana Dharma? It's a great strength. So meaning thereby, we, you see, when we don't have the gods and goddesses, we are cutting off that one from the cosmos. So we can look at gods and goddesses as aspects of the one and they are cosmic managers, to put it in more modern terms. How do you link the one with this world? And that's why we see that religions which did away with the gods, you can't do away because they exist, they are a reality. Uh, whether we believe or not, it doesn't make a difference. So they are there. It's like when you send an application, finally it comes with the prime minister's seal or you know whoever is the immediate officer. It has passed through many hands. That's the channel. So the gods are there as uh, cosmic deities and they are the ones who manage this cosmos in its multiple details. So they are at once deities of the physical world because the physical world also has processes, laws, order, you know, uh, imagine if Agni, the physical Agni, I'm not talking of the inner Agni, if it overshoots its function, what's going to happen? Imagine the waters, if they overshoot. So there are gods who are behind these cosmic forces uh, or manifestations at a physical level. And one may think that this is superstition. On the contrary, this is one of the most profoundest way of managing life. See, when the rains would come sometimes in the sports ground and Particularly, we know about Golkund that at one point the rains were not, uh, you know, people wanted the rains to be stalled by some time. They went to the mother and the mother concentrated and the rains were stalled and they came. The sky was, you know, overcome by clouds and the rains came just when they needed it, when the linton was placed. So it gives us ways and means of manipulating, manipulating is the wrong word, but dealing with the world. Directly by going to the knot of energy on that being through which the supreme consciousness is flowing into it. So we see in the Ramayana, for instance, that, you know, they pray to uh, Samudra, uh, you know, uh, or they pray to the sun god. When people complain that in Pondicherry, it's so hot, mother, the sun is very, uh, very bright, a bit too bright for us. So what do we do? And mother said, make friends with the sun. It's a very profound statement. So it was a way of dealing with the entire creation, which weaved in the sense of the sacred in everything. So it's a wonderful thing to know that, you know, a river, not to believe, but to know that a river is a deity and the sun is a deity and the moon is a deity and the stars are a deity and this entire physical universe, uh, the earth and everything else, the mountain, they are a deity. And this um, kind of a culture exists within India 
and there are you know paucity of time otherwise i could go into several examples and how it helps at least at a personal level i have found it very helpful you know i'll give just one example uh, to regard these you know how these gods operating in the cosmos so uh, there is this story in ramayana so when sushen ved ved comes from lanka you know he is following the highest code of the physician that i have to treat doesn't matter even if it be my enemy so he asks hanuman to bring sanjeevni muti and hanuman brings sanjeevni muti and as you know sugriva is ready to pick up and take it to uh, sushen ved to apply it to lakshmana he says hold on hold on this is what you have got is only the material aspect so what has to be done i have to invoke the healing deity which is within it and therefore through the mantras he invokes and this mantra which was a link between the material and the spiritual is another very profound um, aspect of the vedic lore so how does the mantra become a link because creation starts with that star out of space that first element which comes the sound element so the highest manifestation of sound in creation is vak the word and if you uplift speech to its highest level it becomes creative i mean it has tremendous power sound has a power this we all know but this power can be manifested in human consciousness by lifting it to its highest possible expression to highest possible rhythm because uh, vak is very very rhythmic as we go upward and upward therefore that vak has the power to bring everything into harmony to take another practical uh, demonstration of this that you know when two people are um, uh, you know communicating with each other and you see when they get angry how the speech tends to become more and more disorderly the breath becomes more and more chaotic and when they have to build harmony just let one person start speaking harmoniously beautifully uh, there was a very nice <laughs> video doing the rounds recently of husband and wife fighting but but in a very musical sing song way i don't know whether it really exists or not but i do believe that if if somebody could try it out don't try it out of course but it will have a beautiful effect when our speech becomes musical rhythmic not because we are trying to train it but because it is connected with the uh, vak which is above so mantra was on one side a certain kind of him but on other side mantra was the power of the word and in human beings it is the spoken word and behind it the thought so if we can lift it up to the highest level highest possibility that mantra becomes very powerful it can act upon the physical phenomena it can act upon inner psychological states because they are two sides of one reality so while the gods were at one level deities who were governing the physical creation they were also at one psychological deity so this parallel truth was they were not exclusive of each other but they were working together so the outer fire is there and as very beautifully um, vamdev ji was uh, referring to the fire as you know the fire within and to make it still more see even the words were so beautiful agni ag even now today we use the word age that power that moves things forward that energy in matter which takes the course upward and creates evolutionary forms for the manifestation of the lord the steps of the shakti it creates so this agni which was the first god invoked because it is this which can make everything ascend including this power of speech to higher and higher levels without lighting the agni 
one doesn't invoke the mantra because it's the agni which must be lit and once the agni is lit then the mantra and then the speech and it ascends to where does it ascend to indra now who is indra it's very interesting agni is climbing from below light up even a physical fire you see the fire is ascending up and indra is the lightnings that descend from above so you'll see there is the god of lightning that you know he is the vajra and he sends lightning so these lightnings are the intuitive rains so on one side there is the fire which is ascending upward and on the other side is the rain of intuitive lightnings inspirations the um, uh, thanks for that wonderful uh, talk jayanti ji where you mentioned these three and out of the four goddesses uh, ila saraswati dakshina of course and mahi so all these sarama these goddesses which are like energies which come from above so when the two meet when the fire from within goes up this fire of aspiration and a point comes in the antariksh when these forces from above descend and where the two meet there out of a human being a divine possibility is born and a human being becomes a demigod a rishi and all that until then he is still covered with the cloak of ignorance so this was the journey of the soul from its state of ignorance towards greater and greater possibilities and this journey also followed certain steps the steps through which the involution took place you know the story in rigveda of the brahmajaya the bride of brahman who wanders away from brahman into the inconscient and all the gods go to bring her back and the first god is soma so the whole journey regardless of all our ups and downs remains deep within there is a thread of joy a delight which is running through the journey which helps us to live and ascend and labor and so this energy takes the form of a joyous progress the same energy ag all energy energy that makes us move forward gives us an impulsion forward is the power of agni and then the journey is starts and this is to go through a graded process so we have these many tired worlds again in physics we can explain it try to understand it today physics is speaking about string theory superstring theory and not going into it detail but can we really explain the material cosmos only on the basis of material cosmos this is a big question that um, you know because if we do it then we are trapped in a closed system see there is a it's like the catch 22 situation if you explain the material cosmos everything on the basis of the material cosmos then you are trapped in a closed system and how do we explain the expansion the evolution and everything and the moment we bring in the other dimensions then we have how many dimensions and there we see that the vedas spoke of the three below and the three above and a link dimension and of course we can keep on multiplying because each of these dimension is threefold so the physical is not just physical there is life involved in it making it you know vital physical then there is the mind involved in it making it the mental physical so there is a mind in matter mind as the cosmic agency which is operating to you know what does the mind do it sections the infinite into finite that's why at its highest it becomes the overmind maya maya that measures out so within matter it creates the sense of all separate separate uh, things which are you know uh, whether we call them electrical charges or atoms and they are all together weaving a wonderful dance so there is the avidyamay maya which is constantly creating sections and there is a vidyamay maya which is constantly uh, joining them together in a state of oneness and they are conscious beings and forces so we see that it gives us a much greater empowerment to deal with life somebody who has become one with that Uh, vidyamay maya 
You see what a tremendous harmonizing influence such a person can have in life. And I think the ashram itself is a wonderful example. People from different places, different, um, you know, all kinds of uh, backgrounds have come. But in the mother they were one. So, you know, I always suggest that, you know, just as a physical mother, always the mother state like, even in the mother India, we become one. In Auroville, if we concentrate on the divine, it's a divine mother's creation, then you see the oneness will come. The moment you say, no, it is something impersonal and uh, you will see that immediately each part begins to follow its own course. So this aspect of the divine mother as Aditi, the undivided consciousness, which you find in the Vedas. And Diti, as the sea herself becomes this ignorance. And at first we are prepared through a state of ignorance and there comes a time when the soul of man is ready to ascend through higher and higher states of consciousness. And that readiness of the soul when it is ready to ascend is what is called as the initiation in yoga, the dvij, the second birth. So we always have two births. Actually, even otherwise, we have two double parentage. So, we have the heaven, the deus, and the earth, prithvi. So, earth forms a physical matter and heavens form our soul. Heaven, of course, not the heaven, heaven, <laughs> the way we understand today, but heaven in the sense of the highest luminous state. So, we have come from that. So, there is something in us always carrying the blueprint of the higher worlds. It is this that inspires our idealism, our idealistic thought. It is this that strives towards um, something beautiful, true, good, in spite of all the opposing appearances. And there is something in us which belongs to earth and earthly matter. And that tends to hold us back. And between the two, we have this wonderful uh, manifold rainbow universe as Shubindo describes a tree beside the sandy river which holding its topmost boughs to heaven like fingers like branches um, like fingers to the heaven they cannot reach such is the soul of man his body and brain hungry for earth his heavenly flight detained so there is within us a celestial tongue of fire like a prayer mounting towards heaven and there is something else which holds back why it holds back? Because this says, please take me along. So this idea that later on developed out of Veda by purely extracting the Jnana Kand and turning it into an Upanishadic lore and a meditative practice, it missed the real point. So Vedas are at once inner realities, the Jnana Kand and the Karma Kand. It weaves every aspect. If you see the Vedic life, everything, marriage, birth, everything was a sacred dossier. Everything was sacred. And we have grown up with that. We have seen from childhood till the tomb and later on. Everything was sacred. And why it was sacred? Because that's how in everything there is this eternal truth which is wanting to manifest itself. Every marriage was supposedly supposed to be a marriage of Shiva and Parvati. That's why the marriages start after that. Unfortunately, it turns into Shiva and Sati where one of them has to <laughs> give herself to the fire. This fire ceremony itself in the center in a marriage is man, not you, woman, not you, nor your parents, but the common fire of aspiration is the center of your union. And if you can take it like in any group life, if we take the common ideal, bring it back to that common ideal, in a common uplifting ideal, maybe unite. See that famous uh, sloka of the, uh, among the Agni Mantras, that Sangha Chattam, Sambadattam, let us come together, let us utter the mantra together, let us join together in that fire of aspiration, let us ascend together. So this is the human march, both individually and collectively. And then, this march is no easy journey, 
all the forces of darkness they oppose. So they were the helpers in the journey, the gods, the cosmic deities, whether we regard them or not, it doesn't matter. Every word we utter, there is behind it the power of inspiration. It enters through the brain and the brain thinks it is me. After all, how do thoughts form? But that's a science in itself. So when we look at it, it enters the brain, it changes into the mint of analysis because we can't accept it. And eventually it expresses itself in a very <laughs> analytical sort of way because that's our limitation. But it can come directly as a received knowledge from above and block if we make the mind transmute through the offering of the uh, beautifully as it was said, clarified butter, the, the intelligence. Butter is that snigda, that luminous intelligence. When we put it into the fire, then the fire comes higher and higher. Uh, but on the other hand, if you put smoke and all the impurities, the fire has to first burn it. So there were these dasyus, the natural enemies of the soul. So Kamakrodha, Loba, Mohammad, Matsar, all these six or and the mother adds to them the seventh fear. All of them oppose the march. Why do they oppose the march? Precisely so that the soul may grow in wisdom and strength. It has to reclaim its father's kingdom. That's what Bible says. The son of God, the son and the father are equal and one. Sohamasmi, that's what it means. Tattomasi. But put in a biblical term, it means that the um, son is... Equal to the father is as the father. He has come from the father. And he must become the father. That's the human journey. And the opposition itself is a grand plan. Because through opposition we grow in strength and wisdom. Would we arrive at the cup of immortality which is the goal of the Vedas? By simply, is it a cup to be given in the hands of the weaklings? So we will have multiple oppositions, countless oppositions. We are helpers on the way. Both subtle agencies and human agencies both and similarly we have subtle opposing powers whose names are walas panis and etc which unfortunately um, thanks for that i mean the was unfortunately turned into an aryan dravidian divide uh, which of course is not true now you know the world more or less knows it but politics keeps on <laughs> keeps it simmering so this is the journey of man from the lower firmament to firmament to the higher um, road to see the heavens beyond and how our life moves between these two oceans the ocean of superconscious above and the aprakritim salilam the lower uh, inconscient ocean so the moment we read it it gives such a new sense to life people often ask what's my aim and by aim they think job well our aim is the original impulsion and our aim can be nothing else but to become divine and when we speak of this become divine in the vedic sense it's not divine in some transcendent abstract abstract and have moksha but first uh, get rid of ignorance the moksha and then manifest the divine in each and every part of our being all the gods of the vedas are there to help us the nerves the tvastris who fashion the chariot the uh, uh, flamings which course through the nerves uh, the Ashwins who help heal us from within. It can open a whole way of understanding the whole healing process. There are deities which are waiting to help us when we take the upper journey. When we don't take that journey, then we are under the siege. Our fortress of life is under the siege of the Dasyus and they rob what we receive and change it into and put it into the subconscious. So that has to be taken out the lot of like let's say beautiful things uh, you know people experience this in life this is just one example and then we can stop um, so many things as children we pick up and you know we 
have a glimpse on a mountain something beautiful which opens a door as beautifully vamde ji was describing that he was on a journey from canada to us and he felt successive dawns now these openings everybody experience these openings but what happens they get buried into the subconscious because everybody is not so fortunate or so developed you know but they go into the subconscious of man now this is the story of the dasyu stealing the cows and tying it into the caves and it is sarma the goddess of intuition which shows us there and we are led into that darkness to extract that light which is hidden in the caves so it gives a new meaning to asdo ma sadgamya tamso ma jyotirgamya mrityor ma amritam gamya so one is out of the non being to the true being out of death to immortality out of darkness to light and the other is to take out the light which is hidden in darkness and that is how we understand the vedic lore of martand the eighth aditya who is buried inside so there is light hidden in this darkness so the vedic lore was not about leaving this realm and going there going there was only a prelude the whole journey was not finishing there the journey had to be brought back that 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 sun that light and it had to come back and bring out that light which is hidden in the subconscious so that joining these two poles we can make heaven and earth equal and one so i i suppose uh, you know so much i want to <laughs> go into but uh, we'll close with these lines from savitri uh, which directly connect us with the vedic lore so vedas i look at it like a project one is that if you take it as a book then of course there are certain number of shlokas and it's fixed there but if you take it as the eternal veda which is the infinite truth unfolding within us then veda can never be finished in terms of a book because there will be unending revelations which are yet to come so the seed that is cast in the vedas goes through the different cycles ages they prepare so beautifully shubhendra says in savitri a word is spoken the ages toil to express and eventually with this supramental manifestation we'll awaken to an age to a race where not just individual rishis but large masses of mankind will wake up to this truth the satyam the right the rhythm Uh, and the vast the the vrhatam because see how beautifully truth now nowadays people often say oh god is in everyone yes but complement it with other truth that god is in everyone but manifest himself in different degrees in different layers of humanity god is even in the snake but if you want to pick a cobra and put around your neck be sure you are shiva otherwise you will be a dead man so to understand god in the essence and god in the manifestation in his leela both are important and this ascension comes through sacrifice and that is where the sacrifice is of the lower for higher lower for higher what is today higher will become lower because you have to go further what is uh, today higher will become lower because we have to ascend higher and higher so this agni will carry us otherwise if we are satisfied that okay we have some nice inspirations and wonderful time to time i have intuitions no that's not enough it has to keep on going till we discover that point where shrubindu says god and world grow true and one so we have these lines the supreme the source choice and the supreme consummation on page 704 adventurers into a mightier day ascending out of the limiting breaths of mind they shall discover the world's huge design and step into the truth the right the vast and then of course he says that there is uh, 
a consciousness the mind cannot uh, touch and it is this where we have to reach yes which of course is there in the vedas in its beautiful way the swar of the rishis which is the heaven of the rays of the sun and the maharlok where they are aspiring to go they could see it from there that there is still greater and they want to go there but it is covered hiranmayina patrena satyasyapihita mukham they he wants that law of truth we govern our life by different laws and rules but that law of truth what is the original divine impulsion now that prayer of rishi yagnavalkar you know has been answered because the face of truth has been opened and the luminous waters of the the golden waters of the greater dawn are pouring upon earth and uh, here shurbindo says with which i'll uh, pause 705 page there is a consciousness mind cannot reach its speech cannot utter nor its thought reveal right now the walk has not been tuned to that expression it has no home on earth the human body doesn't have a center the brain must first receive it and centers must form within to hold this supramental light and then the expressive power yet is the source of all things thought and done the fount of the creation and its works it is the origin of all truth here knowing which all can be known this sun orb of minds fragmentary rays infinities heaven that spills the rain of god the immense that calls to man to expand the spirit the wide aim that justifies his narrow attempts a channel for the little he tastes of bliss so so my is the god who goes in the beginning and so my is the god who is retrieved at the end so that's why we have very beautifully as was said you know we have varuna and mitra and we have arman who must battle and then we have bhagda ananda and um, shobindo in in the synthesis of yoga he speaks of these four aims this way shuddhi shuddhi mukti purification from the ignorance of lower nature so we are liberated we discover that who we are the soul within so shuddhi leads to mukti after all it is just a covering the soul within is in everyone but it's covered so purify that layer through the fire the yagna the sacrifice and one arrives at mukti which is freedom from that ignorance which is covering us and then comes siddhi now once the soul is free it must ascend towards the divine perfection so shobindo takes the goal of the vedic rishis which was primarily immortality of course by immortality the it was not just about physical immortality but immortality of the soul immortality of the vast infinite and there are touches where they talk about the physical but that's a different aspect altogether it was never really developed and then after siddhi that perfection we have bhukti the divine enjoyment of creation so this world is made for delight and not for escaping into some kind of inane and it's important to emphasize this because invariably what we see in many of the vedantic schools ultimately at the end of the day it's all inner 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 within but this inner to empower us for the outer these were the mighty examples of great yogins bhishma arjuna shri krishna himself shorbindo the mother they had realized this and had tremendous power over the world just imagine that they were conducting the second world war from a room just as shri krishna on the battlefield on the chariot unarmed and yet he was the 
uh, one who was conducting the entire war. Such is the future towards which Shubhendra and the mother are leading us through the supramental manifestation, fulfilling the dream that the Vedic seers saw and leading those seeds sown in the early dawns of humanity towards the grand culmination of the noons of the future. Namaste. Well, one, I, first of all, I thank you very much for all your time that has brought you to clarify and illuminate a little bit our audience. And uh, what I would like eventually is not a question, but a request. If you could actually clarify a little bit or expand a little bit about the yogic process involved uh, in this book. And the indication I can go, we can read in this book about a yogic If there is an advice, if there is a path through mantra or through invocation, some little bit of explanation, a little bit of expansion on this message that eventually is in this secret aspect describing on the, our text. So, uh, may I? Uh, so, there are three aspects of the, as far as the yoga in the Vedas is concerned. There is the yajna, there is the mantra, and there is the devata or the deity. So, if we universalize it, not exactly following exactly how the specific mantra and uh, things are concerned, then yajna means to light the fire of aspiration in which we offer every tendency. I mean, the Gita has revealed it so beautifully uh, in chapter 4 and chapter 6 and furthermore, that light this fire of aspiration. And this aspiration by its very nature is to seek something which is higher, truer, more beautiful. It can take any form, but give it a form. And to offer all we do and all we are into it. So when we do it, we do it with the help of the mantra. So this mantra, of course, one is one way to look at it is the uh, traditional um, mantras which are there in the Vedas. And they are very powerful. They are universal mantras. Uh, they have been practiced by yogis over the years. But this mantra can also be a universal, a universal power of the word, like a word like Om. Now this word has been used over millenniums. And so it has gathered a power through which... Uh, when we offer it, for instance, you know, uh, we are eating a food and with this aspiration within that, um, this inner process, of course, we don't uh, have to make it loud. But through that inner process, when we are making the act of eating, we are offering it to the universal uh, and the transcendent divine within. So by doing it, we are linking our ephemeral transient uh, existence to the eternal and the permanent so that it can receive that touch. Or we can do it by... Any line, like personally, I, I prefer the word ma. So there is something like the divine name. So the divine name becomes the mantra. And the embodied divine becomes the deity. So that's why I said, instead of confining to the gods, which was wonderful in the Vedas itself, we see this later on, the Upanishads speak about, you know, directly connecting with the Supreme. So any name, any word, if we take the conception of the Gita, so any word, any name, which can which for us represents the divine. So for somebody it could be Shiva. That's why we have multiplicity of approaches. To somebody else, Haris. To someone it could be Om Namo Bhagavate. To another person, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevai. To another person, Sri Arvinda Hasharnamama. Or it could be an English mantra, a line from Savitri. So whatever way, but the mantra is essentially 
it sets into motion those higher the vibrations and rhythms of the higher world this is what i was you know referring to so when we do it then automatically all that we are offering in is surrounded by that vibration and uplifted above so there comes to the aid of agni the mantra and then of course we have the deities so in the vedas of course pantheon we have the deities these deities underwent many modifications down the ages for instance indra of the vedas in the puranas we see him uh, take a different position and vishnu and his triple steps in the vedas becomes uh, another aspect so uh, that need not be strictly the physical image as we have conceived in fact in the vedas we see that the physical images have come much later so for us it should be that uh, deity which represents to us the absolute divine so for instance for the devotees of the mother and shurabindo it becomes the mother the embodied mother the or shurabindo for somebody else who is following so guru becomes guru brahma guru vishnu guru deva maheshwara so these are the three main things that is the sacrificial fire which means one is willing to sacrifice the lower for the higher so if one is not ready to do it then it's you know no point in engaging in yoga and this fire has to be uh, activated more and more through the act of offering and when the offering is done with the mantra the right mantra now it is in that right state of consciousness it's not like one is doing it mechanically eating but one is offering with the right mantra mantra creates a state of consciousness that is conducive conducive uh, not like just watching tv and doing things so when we do that then this fire gets is energized and lifts the offering up and up and then of course we have the deity so these are the fundamental three things which we find in the vedic yoga as such and then there are a lot of details in every sphere of life but these are the three fundamental things yes thanks very much i thought it was nicely explained okay shall shall i continue with some question from the audience So um uh, please Dr Pandey and Dr Froley let me know when the, the time is up also uh, uh feel free uh, and then we will wrap up the webinar if you are uh, um a bit short of time so I have a question from Arpan Kumar Pasak why does west the west hesitate or avoid to acknowledge the incredible contribution of ancient india to science who would like to um. I can address that. Uh first of all you have to understand that uh in the west uh we've had a civilization that's just developed over the past few hundred years and it has developed by going against or departing from some of the older cultures. And each culture likes to you might say uh define civilization in its uh, own way. Now in the west science has been the outer science not the inner science and so the cultures that had developed the inner science it's not willing to or able to acknowledge at the same time india developed both and some of these this knowledge came through you know the british picked up some the persians the arabs etc picked up things over time so they were kind of buried in history it's also part of you might say a cultural uh, superiority and and kind of of looking that we own and we control so the vedic view is larger the outer sciences and the inner sciences are both acknowledged but the inner science alone brings as they say immortality the outer sciences are for the practical world so the western science is now beginning to get a glimpse of 
cosmology, universal consciousness there. Uh, they're beginning to recognize meditation can improve how the brain works. Sanskrit can improve how the brain works. But their idea of the human being is not panchakosha. It's not atma. Uh, it is still the physical being, brain chemistry, uh, outer things, and name, form, and number uh, measurements externally rather than the internal uh knowing. And also, as I said, most of these books on the origins of science began in the colonial era. And in the colonial era, there was a downsizing and rejection of Indian civilization, even though some Westerners, uh, whether uh, some of the intellectuals, even from uh, Voltaire to Schopenhauer, accepted the uh, antiquity of the depth of Indian civilization. There was that colonial view and expropriation of these things. So you'll notice the economy of India went from 20% of the world down to less than 1% under the British. Literacy went down in India. Sanskrit schools were closed, all of that. So that has created a certain ignorance and arrogance. And only today is there a recognition. And the other problem that India's had is that a lot of the intellectuals after independence went to the Marxist route, which was also against India's own culture and civilization. So when they wrote history books, they followed a Marxist Western line rather than an Indian line that honored the teachings, the Shastras and the sciences. They tried to turn Ayurveda into something primitive. So these processes have gone on. And today it's important that India claims its inner outer sciences as the inner sciences are also spreading uh, globally. Hariyom. I would uh, also suggest that there is a very nice short essay in Shurabindu's Bengali writings called East and West. So it shows the two approaches which lead to this, you know, uh, one is a Dehyatma both, where one is turned outward and regards the body and the vital as the true self and the other is inward turned which regards the soul and the spiritual as the real thing. So of course now they have to come together for the great fulfillment. But that has led to this complete misunderstanding about, you know, mutual. Yeah. So it's a nice essay worth reading, short essay in Bengali writings. Thank you. So now we group two questions of uh, Jyoti Prasad Rajan. Uh, why Vedic gods are not worshipped any longer? If we go by this trend, do you think the existing gods of overmind will be superseded? If Sri Krishna and the like are from the overmind, what would be the level of conscious, consciousness from, uh, for the Vedic gods? I guess maybe the concept of mind needs to be explained also for the audience. Yes, so the mother did mention that, you know, the age of the gods is over. That doesn't mean that we have done away with them. They are facts and, uh, you know, cosmic deities. So man, once he makes the ascension, and it's very easy to understand. So gods are deities who stand at the overmind level, uh, the Swarlok and, you know, around that area and they come down to less, you know, less and lesser. Now they are assisting the human soul to ascend. Now this human soul, when it ascends to, let's say, the Swarlok, then what is the relation of man with the gods? It changes into a friends. So I take it like this, that a child who is studying through a school has a teacher and teacher in kindergarten, teacher in primary, secondary and, you know, higher secondary and college. But when the child graduates, 
and goes further for further studies. What is the relation of the child and the teacher? At one level, he respects the teacher. But another level, it's equally true that one has gone beyond. So the relation changes of the gods as those who are helping mankind to grow to one of a friend, a co, you know, those who assist in the same labor, who are undertaking the labor of the gods. One can be like a demigod and that's what is meant by many of these Puranic lore that, you know, Dashrata fought in the Devasur Sangram, many earthly beings uh, from the side of the gods. So how are they fighting? Of course, we can take many levels of its understanding. But man can grow into a God. So this is the great gift of the Vedas, that we can grow into oneness and likeness of the God. That's what we see also in the Mahabharata, many of these people are. But now from a man growing into the level of a God, if I have to use a Sanskrit term, we can become Devamanav. But from Devamanav, the next step, the supramental is Divyamanav. So that is something which, uh, you know, is not yet accessible to the God. The gods have to take a human form to become a Divyamanav. There is a line in Savitri, a God come down and greater by the fall. So uh, man at a level needed the gods to assist, to reach a point. But beyond it, Devamanav, he can become a godlike human being. But to become a divine humanity of the future, he has to go beyond. So those who are ready, it's for them that we see the supramental manifestation brings a new possibility. It's not something which, you know, can be generalized in anyone and everyone. As to whether human beings believe in gods or not, that's a different story altogether. Human beings always believe in gods, but in a different way. When we say, I believe in democracy. Now, what really you are believing? Behind democracy, there is a godhead. So, there are different ways of looking at the same phenomena. We only change names. We believe in gods. Uh, well, um, uh, in India, anybody with an abundance of certain energy in whatever direction, a, a man with great learning, um, you know, is respected and revered as a god. What does it mean? You may not acknowledge Saraswati. That's okay. But he's a child of Saraswati. Or when you uh, say Shivaji, the great warrior, you may not use the word Durga, but he is a manifestation of Durga. So, in one way or the other, human beings acknowledge the gods in their workings. Whether they use the word God or not, gods don't uh, really mind it. <laughs> they are um, just doing the labor, their job. And human beings can participate, should participate as co-hosts and collaborators in that great work. Uh, I have one point here. Gods is a Western yeah. term. It has other meanings but they tend to have a lower level. Devatas are cosmic principles and they're universal powers and they exist on all levels of existence. We talk about uh, Agni from Jataragni all the way to Brahmagni. Uh, we have Lord Skanda, who is also Agni, has taken a form of Agni. So they're not to be limited like, they're also Devas who are advanced beings. That's a different thing. And even the gods interpenetrate. Uh, some people say, oh, there's no Shiva in the uh, Vedas because the word Shiva isn't prominent there. Rudra is there. But if you look at Shiva, uh, Shiva has three eyes, Agni, Soma, Surya, which are the three main deities. He, he has three powers, the right eye, left eye, and the third eye, which are the three main deities of the Vedas. And Indra is his lightning form, the four forms of light. So these same principles manifest at different levels. They may have different names at different times, but they exist within us and they exist at both universal levels and personal levels. They are cosmic powers. 
how many forms of Agni, even the nuclear bomb is a form of Agni in some ways. These are the powers in the universe. So we need to move beyond an anthropomorphic idea of a God to the cosmic principles to understand the Vedas and to understand the Vedic cosmology because the Vedic mantras are reflecting the power of the universe. Uh, you know that there is the spontaneous mantra that exists in space. Chittakasha has its own mantric power. That is where the Vedas come from. Human speech is way down the line. So we need that universal vision or vision that unites like the Purusha, the entire universe is one being, uh, but that one being is also more than uh, any particular uh, form. Hariyam. Thank you. So I'll take a question from T.Y. Srinivas Iyengar. We should not say the Vedas, but in singular, Veda, since the parts are just of the whole. We should also not say the Veda, like no one says the God. There is only Veda. It is the sonic form of creation. Hence, it should be the secret of Veda. Agreed or not? I would generally agree, of course, semantic issues and things that are published. And then whether you're referring to Vedas as these different texts, it's very interesting to note that the Rig Veda's foundation of the other Vedas, most of the mantras, Devatas are explained uh, there. But it's also even said in the Vedas, the Vedas are ananta, they're innumerable. And because the Vedas are innumerable, you do certain of these uh, specialized uh, mantras. So Veda is there as truth. And Veda also means vision. Even the term video comes out of Vidya, by the way, uh, via the uh, Greeks. So we should understand Veda as a singular uh, reality. But Veda also has endless manifestations and Veda is the cosmic speech that covers everything. Hario. So I will group here two questions of two different persons, Jyoti Charvrajan and Ranjan Sengupta. Sri Aurobindo and Bal Gangadhar Tilak had great respect for each other and did think alike. Is there any evidence that Sri Aurobindo also ascribed to Tilak's idea of Arctic Om? of Vedas, which is also what Jyoti Rajan Chal was asking about the origin from near the North Pole uh, of the Aryans. I was just going to say that, yeah, he's right. Sri Aurobindo mentioned it, but Sri Aurobindo doesn't follow that. And the reason is that Sri Aurobindo also embraces the idea of the Samudra, the ocean, and the uh, connections of all the uh, cultures. We have to remember that when uh, Tilak mentioned that there was there are some thoughts in Western thought that the cultures had come from uh, the north. Uh, Tilak wasn't at the time when the Saraswati River was known. So had he been, I don't think he would have had this view. Now his Orion book and the astronomy there is very interesting, and that is helpful. But I don't think that, that the Arctic theory was that valid product of the times. And I don't think Sri Aurobindo embraced it. And those in Aurobindo schools, whether Sethna or uh, Jagan et cetera, when this other knowledge came out, uh, we have to remember. I always emphasize the maritime nature of the Vedas. And that always takes us to uh, India and the multiple oceans. Hariyom. 
Okay, um, a question from Andreas Freund. Could you say something about the significance of the Bindu in the Vedas? Is there a link between Bindu and Aurobindo? Thank you so much. You know, Joel, if I could just interrupt too kindly, we have so many uh, great questions here. And I know a lot of people have time limited. I'm wondering, uh, Vamadeva and uh, Dr. Pandey, if you might be willing to reconvene at a, another time to answer uh, some of these questions. Might that be possible? Perhaps. Uh, yes, I think perhaps that would be better to have a Q&A session where all these questions can be collected and then, you know, we could come again like this at 7.45 or something. Okay. Perfect. So maybe, Joel, if you have a last question, there is something we can uh, we can take it and then we'll follow up with everyone uh, for a, a next section. Maybe the one I just asked about the relationship between Bindu and Aurobindo, is there any? <laughs> no, not to my knowledge. So in any case, it is Sri Aurobindo and Bindu is a different thing. So Sri Aurobindo, the word Aurobindo comes from you know, it is the dawn as well as Arvind, that's how it is in English. Uh, in Hindi, it is Arvind, means lotus, which represents the avatar. In Bengali, it becomes Aurobindo. And the Sri is not used as an epithet, but as the full name. And the mother spoke about it, That the, and Nolnida has whole written a whole letter on it, that the name Shurabindo is complete and carries a mantric power in it. So it is not Aurobindo, it is Shurabindo. And as far as the Bindu and Bindu is concerned, well, Shurabindu uh, links the Bindu of the soul to the Mahasindhu, which is above. So that's the only connection. But uh, from the name point of view, there is no such link. So yes. Shurabindu um, is a name complete in itself. Yeah, It means the lotus. And it's a Bengalization of the lotus. But because it has been adopted by Shurabindo, it carries now with it a mantric power. So originally it is Arvind. Then it, at different times he had different names. And then finally the name which is can be considered as the yogic name of Shurabindo is Sri Aurobindo. So Sri was not added as a honorific which he makes it very, very clear. Yeah. yeah and of course in Bengali, the Sanskrit V becomes B. So Aravinda yes, is not Aravindo. So it's just it's a, it's an illusion of sound. Bindu is is not uh, not actually there. It's Vinda for for lotus, as you say. If uh, I may add, it's quite interesting from a etymological point of view. Aravinda, Ara is the ray of light. Vinda is uh, the same as Govinda. It's actually synonymous to Govinda, the one who you know follows or finds Vindate is Vindati is from Vidrut. Panini describes this Vidrut in two forms, Vind sixth class and Vid uh, second class. So it's always discovering, finding out, discovering the light. And uh, these aras also, sahasrara, are the petals of the, so, or the rays. So, discovering the rays of light, on the light. The same as Govinda. It's kind of interesting to know. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, let's close here. I would like to thank our esteemed panelists today for addressing uh, such an important and relevant topic, and we will have uh, uh, most likely a follow-up to this webinar. 
I'll just invite everybody to close our program today with a moment of silence, uh, invoking the Divine Mother and thanking Shirobindo. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Shamadeva. Lok Pandey. Namaste. Thank you. Namaste.